Well, what a sweet privilege we have before us this morning. We have come, we are in Revelation chapter 14 today. The fourth of seven visions in this section of Revelation. Each of which begin with the phrase, Then I looked, or, and behold. But I want to review the first three visions before we begin to look at the fourth one today. The first vision was of a great red dragon who viciously pursued the Christ child and then the church, his church. That was in Revelation chapter 12. In chapter 13, the first half of 13, was the second vision, the vision of a hideous beast who was given satanic power over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and which uttered haughty and blasphemous words, who was allowed to take God's people captive and even slay them with the sword. And then in the second half of Revelation 13, the third vision was of a second beast who was enabled to deceive many through miracles and false prophecies and made the inhabitants of the earth worship the first beast, killing any who refused. These three form a trinity of evil. Of course, the most excellent thing which ever existed is the Holy Trinity. Satan cannot outdo outdo that. All he can do is try to counterfeit it. It's very fitting that these three visions of wicked monsters are followed by the vision of Revelation 14, 1-5. After facing the reality of the beasts and the dragon, this comes to give us hope. If you were disturbed by Revelation 12 and 13, and if you're paying attention, you ought to have been disturbed by Revelation 12 and 13, then you're ready for Revelation 14. You're set up. In fact, one of the purposes of the first three visions is to prepare us for this fourth vision in Revelation 14. So let's read together the first five verses of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. 
And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And so Revelation 12 and 13 talks about the persecution of believers and what's behind that. And the deception, the manipulation done by the forces of unbelief. Led by Satan and his two beastly cohorts. And now chapter 14 shows the reward for those who remain faithful even through all this satanic attack. And they are glorifying God because he has defeated the evil one and has enabled his saints to overcome. So let's walk our way through these verses. First of all, let's look at verse 1. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. There are three things to say here about the Lamb, the 144,000, and about Mount Zion. First, we've just been exposed to these three grotesque beasts. And now in contrast, we see the Lamb. We've already seen this Lamb several times in the book of Revelation. It's the Lord Jesus. And he's depicted as a lamb because he gave himself up as a sacrifice on the cross. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. We've also seen that this lamb is a lion who is way more powerful than all these beasts. The second thing, the 144,000. We've seen that as well in Revelation 7, 4 to 8. These are the people of God. In Revelation 7, they are sealed. Just as here, they have the name of God written on their foreheads. Basically the same thing. The number 144,000 is not literal, but figurative. Just like most of the rest of the numbers in the book of Revelation. The 144,000 represents the complete number of God's people. Twelve, you see, is the number of completeness when it comes to God's people. Because there's twelve tribes of Israel. Probably the 144 here is the number of the twelve tribes of Israel multiplied by the twelve apostles. Times a thousand to imply a massive number. Remember, in John's vision of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city in Revelation 21 and 22, which represents the whole people of God, the city has 12 gates on which are written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It also has a great wall, 144 cubits in height with 12 foundation stones on which are written the names of the 12 apostles so it seems to be drawn from the same kind of modality as we have there in later in revelation thirdly the lamb and this 144,000 are on mount zion 
And you remember that Psalm 2, which is talking about the Messiah, says, God says about the Messiah, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Mount Zion, all through the Bible, is the place where the Messiah reigns over the world in the presence of his people. So that's what's depicted here. And we are part of this assembly. As it says in Hebrews 12, you, as believers in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So that's the setting for this vision. The Lamb, the 144,000 people on Mount Zion. Now in verse 2 and 3, it begins to tell us what happens there. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is so beautiful. The sound of one harp is enough to melt your heart. And here there are many harps. It's the song of the redeemed that we sang about this morning. It's the voice of the angels I'm sorry, it's the voice of the saints singing to their Lord. It's strong and it's awesome, but it's also lovely and majestic. Now, we're not told the theme of the song. But based on previous songs sung by the saints before the throne, and before the Lamb, and based on the fact that verse 4 describes the singers as those who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, we can assume that this is a song of praise and worship to God and to the Lamb. We're also told that no non-believer can learn this song. Only those whose eyes and hearts have been opened by the power of the Holy Spirit to see the reality of Christ and His wonderful grace. Have you heard the story of the Christian man whose brother was in prison? And he would go to visit him and sometimes he'd have a chance to talk to other inmates who were in the prison about Christ. And one day... As he was talking to another one of the inmates, his brother joined them, and his brother kept inserting statements and comments into the conversation to try to help his brother. But the Christian brother took his inmate brother, not implying that you can't be a Christian and an inmate, but in this story, there's a Christian who's visiting and an inmate who's in the prison, and they're brothers. So the Christian brother pulled him aside and said, Look, Please stop inserting yourself into this conversation. You know the words, but you don't know the song. I think he must have just been reading 
Revelation 14.3. Non-believers can't learn the song. And then this vision ends by telling us three things about these redeemed saints, these redeemed singers. Verses 4 to 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So the three things here. They have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and in their mouth no lie is found, for they are blameless. It seems that in the midst of this glorious vision, the Holy Spirit has snuck in a few subtle challenges to the readers of this about the way God's people are supposed to be living. These people aren't merely different from the world in the song that they sing. They're not only different in that they are redeemed by God as first fruits for God and the Lamb, But they're also different in the blameless way they live their lives. They have a different guiding principle than the people of the world. They handle their sexuality differently than non-believers. And they handle truth differently than others. Let's talk about those. First of all, sexuality. Some think that... Verse 4a isn't actually talking about sexuality. It's talking about spiritual virginity. Being faithful and single-mindedly devoted to Christ. They take this interpretation because there are a number of passages like 2 Corinthians 11.2 which talk about this. For instance, here where Paul says to the Corinthians, I am jealous For you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And I think it probably, this probably does have a spiritual aspect to it. But I think it also includes the issue of sexuality. And there are two reasons that I think this. Number one, Unlike 2 Corinthians 11.2, which is based on the image of the church as the pure bride of Christ, being faithful to Christ the bridegroom, this passage refers to the purity not of the woman, but of the man. They have not defiled themselves with women. Also, the book of Revelation clearly has a concern about actual sexual impurity. We saw this in Jesus' letter to Thyatira in Revelation 2.20, where he said, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And we hear it again near the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 22, 14 to 15, where the the picture of the new Jerusalem and all those who are inside and all those who are not inside is given in the vision. 
And this is what it says. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they might enter the city by its gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The same, two of the same things that are picked up here. The lying and the sexual immorality. Now, of course, there is a close relationship between sexual purity and spiritual purity. If you're spiritually pure, you're also going to be sexually pure. And if you're sexually pure, you're also, I'm sorry, and if you're sexually impure, you're also inevitably going to be spiritually impure. Of course, there certainly are true believers who slip into sexual sin. King David is the obvious example in the Bible. He committed adultery and repented and was forgiven by God. Now on the surface, the language in this passage in verse 4, I'm sorry, in verse, yeah, verse 4, sounds like it's talking about all sexuality, even in marriage. But if that's what it actually is meaning to say, it would be the only passage in all of Scripture which would suggest that God's holy people are called to be single and non-sexual. Rather, this seems to be talking about a man not defiling himself with any woman outside of his wife, nor a woman with any man but her husband. In other words, it's talking about virginity in the con- outside the context of one's marriage. So why is sexual immorality treated so harshly in the Bible? I just read a passage where, where, where it talks about um, how people who are sexual immoral aren't in the kingdom. And there's more passages like that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Galatians 5, 19 and 21. Ephesians 5, 5. They all say the same thing. Why is sexual sin in the Bible so consistently and vehemently condemned? Well, it's not because God is approved. He's the one who created sex, after all. And for such an exalted purpose... To bring new life into the world. To cement and sweeten the bond of marriage. And to reflect the relationship of Christ and his church. No, it's not because God is against sex. But because sexual sin is so dangerous. Just because it's so beautiful and so compelling. And sexual sin is so addicting. It's so distracting of one's attention. And it's so draining of one's strength. It's so damaging to the soul. And so it's out of love that God emphasizes this sin so often in the scriptures. Now this actually is part of the second characteristic of the saints here. Namely, that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The fact is, following Christ isn't easy. Sometimes he leads us to places we don't like to go. 
or leads us to relate to folks that we don't like to relate to. Or he asks us to do things which are uncomfortable to do. Or he asks us not to do things which we really want to do. But believers in Christ don't just do what they want to do or what they feel like doing. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And one of the things He leads us to is sexual purity. It's part of following Him wherever He goes. Another way Christians must follow the Lamb wherever He goes is by following Him into the darkness in order to bring the light. Jesus left the comfort and security of his heavenly home and came down in love to this dark and messy world. And now he asks us to follow him into places which don't seem to us safe. And he asks us to love people even when it doesn't seem safe. Today many make safety an idol and justify it to themselves as wisdom. This is what some folks in our own congregation expressed when my daughter Michelle announced her plans to go to West Africa. Though I don't think any of those folks are still with us. Do you know that people can usually tell whether you're coming to them in love or in fear? And if they can see that we're afraid, it damages our witness. Because they see our human fear instead of our love for Christ. In my opinion, this is one of the hardest idols for people like us to shake. For people like me to shake, I should say. Let's pray that the Lamb would deliver us from this idol so we can follow Him wherever He goes. And the last quality that is mentioned is truthfulness. It's said of believers here, after mentioning sexual purity and the willingness to follow Christ wherever he goes, that in their mouth no lie was found. Ultimately, of course, human beings make a habit of lying. They lie to each other and they even lie to themselves. They claim they're happy when they're really not. They claim to have what they need when they don't really have what they need. They claim that sin is safe when it's clearly not safe. They claim that they don't need God when they desperately do. And they use justifications for their behavior which they would never accept from someone else who is trying to justify their sin. But in a world of deception and corruption... Believers in Christ are people of honesty, integrity, and trustworthiness because they don't need to impress people. They live to honor God. Those who are of the Lord and not of the devil follow their master in not lying. They know that they're unworthy sinners saved by the grace of Christ, so they don't need to pretend, they don't need to lie. They can be honest about their sin because they know that there's forgiveness. They can be honest about their need and about their failures and about their struggles. Of course they are imperfect in this. They're subject to temptations just like other men, to live like other men. 
And sometimes they do feel the need to impress others. And sometimes they do lie. And when they do, hopefully they repent and are forgiven. But lying is inconsistent with following Christ and having his mark upon you. Now, as I wrap this up, in this vision, we get a glimpse of God's purpose in history. To redeem a people for himself. Simple, humble people called out from among the broken and the desperate and the poor and the helpless of the world. People who aren't self-sufficient, self-assured, or self-satisfied. People who know they're sick and need the doctor. People claimed from every people group on earth. It's not literally 144,000 people, but it is a specific number. Though God alone knows what that number is. They are God's treasures. They are the ones for whom Christ died. They're the ones predestined in love before the foundation of the world. That they would be as holy and blameless adopted children for all eternity. They are his beloved. Who are now being prepared to be presented before him as his spotless bride on the last day. The calling of these people to himself is what history is all about. And there is no more beautiful people in all the world than those who reflect the glory of Christ. Whose eyes sparkle with his love. Surely the world is not worthy of them. In them, however imperfectly, you can see Christ. I've had the privilege of knowing many of them in my life. And I count it as a privilege unsurpassed only by the blessing of knowing Christ himself. Maybe an even better way to understand history is that it's about, all about, singing a song. Some of us here are in Gainesville Community Choir. Right now, we're getting people signed up to join us in singing Handel's Messiah, some of the best music ever written in December. And this bears a similarity to what history is all about. Christ is gathering singers and then teaching them the most wonderful song that's ever been sung. And that's our highest role in life. Oh, it's good for Christ's people to serve their neighbors in trying to make the world a better place. But ultimately, we're here to sing a song and to gather more singers to sing it. There are monsters wreaking havoc in our lives. But the monsters aren't the only characters in our story. There is also the Lamb, and His presence changes everything. It means that we can spend our lives not fretting, not panicking, not gasping, but we can spend our lives singing, even when we're being attacked. But if you don't have the song of Christ in your heart, how will you ever be able to face the world's monsters?
I love the word, I love the word, juxtaposition. It's just fun to say it. Juxtaposition. It refers to the concept of when you put two things side by side for the purpose of seeing the contrast between them. And that's exactly what God has done for us here in Revelation 12 to 14. These realities coexist side by side. We are under attack. We have serious enemies. But the Lamb is here too. The visions of the great red dragon and then the two beasts followed by the vision of God's people singing a beautiful song to the Lamb reminds me of so many stories in the Bible. It reminds me of the story of Paul and Barnabas sitting there in the prison singing hymns to God in Acts 16. It reminds me of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. But there's a fourth person down there with them, one who is like the Son of God. It reminds me of the story of Stephen being stoned by a mob, and yet even while he's being killed, he looks up to heaven and sees Christ standing at the right hand of God, looking down at him. This is us. We are surrounded by those who hate us, but our precious Lord prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And so we sing. And this isn't just the point of this specific part of Revelation. This is one of the big points of the book, whole book of Revelation. Let us pray. We thank you for your marvelous word, O Lord. We thank you that the Lamb overshadows all the pains and the failures and the heartaches and the losses. And dear Lord, we thank you that one day we won't any longer see with imperfect eyes that just get a glimpse of what's true but that we'll see clearly as though face to face and we'll see Christ and we'll understand his purposes for all the hard things that happen in our lives but dear Lord in the meantime we thank you that we can trust you that you know what you're doing and that there is no wasted suffering that you bring to your children Help us, O oh Lord. Help us to sing your song with joy in our hearts, even when we're in prison. Now we thank you that you have invited us to partake of the table where the Lord Jesus Christ is remembered and celebrated for what he did upon the cross. Be with us, O oh Lord. As we feed upon him, for we remember, O Lord, that he was the ultimate one who suffered and yet was victorious even as he suffered. Because your power 
was about to raise him from the dead. And your victory was being accomplished over sin and death. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.